Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Father, please help us to make the most of our time this morning. You fill all of us full of the Holy Spirit to listen and learn. Lord, we are a weak and needy people. I pray that you would make us a hungry people, a desperate people. Uh, For your word, Lord, again, not to just have intellectual understanding, but to see some of the glory of Christ, um, to worship you, to appreciate you, to enjoy you, to be transformed by you, to be conformed slowly but surely, into your image. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk, really, today's all going to be about Christology. Um, And I've got a whole class series on this if y'all want to go deeper. But um, let me just read a couple of different places from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And some of this is coming out of, I don't remember if it was a week or two ago, Jacob, you asked the question, I think something about Christ on the cross. or um, Yeah, where did he go? Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, in light of some of that, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive today on Christology. So, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, verse 3, or section 3. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So the main thing to get from that is the Trinity is three and one, one and three, um, and yet, they're all they're co-eternal, right? It's not the Father first and then Jesus was created second. It's very important. They, they have eternally existed. The Lord Jesus Christ was begotten by the Father, but from all eternity. He has no beginning, just like the Father has no beginning. And so, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 8. I'm going to read sections 2, sections 3, and section 7. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities. That's an important word, thereof. Yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. I know I'm giving you a ton here. We're going to kind of unpack it as we go. But Jesus Christ is one person, yet with two distinct natures. Um, Fully God, fully man, joined together forever. They'll never be separated. Jesus is not just an ethereal spirit floating around now. He is a physical human being. A male Jew is sitting on the throne in heaven. Our risen Savior. Westminster Confession, chapter 8, section 3. The Lord Jesus, in His human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell, to, that, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, 
who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. And then Westminster Confession 8, section 7, Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of that person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other. I know that's a lot. I'll explain as we go. Okay. One of the first big controversies in church history was, is Christ really co-eternal with the Father of the same essence, of the same substance, or is he of a similar substance with the Father? And Athanasius was the main one that led the fight for that to defend um, what we would um, call the orthodox view. So uh, if you really want to read a really ancient book, there's a book called On the Incarnation. It's actually pretty short and it's fairly readable by Athanasius. And this quote comes from this, and he's talking about the Word, right, which is the way John refers to Jesus. The Word perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the Word, being immortal and the Father's Son, was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death in order that, through belonging to the Word, who is above all, might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. So just think about it just logically. In a sense, when God knew the only way to save sinners is someone has to die in their place, but God can't die. Well, I'll become a man so that I can't die. And yet we can't just pick some random man because you need an eternal substitute, an eternal sacrifice to be able to pay the price for the sins of billions of people. So it had to be God that died and God who had the power to rise again and live eternally. So John Owen, this is from the glory of Christ, says, there shall never be a dissolution of the union between God and our nature anymore. Okay, okay so let's look at John 1. Um, you know, when you look at the Gospels, they all start in a little bit different place. Okay, um, If you look at Matthew, where does Matthew kind of start his Gospel? And you can flip and look there if you want to, or you can just take a guess off the top of your head if you want to. Okay, he starts the genealogy of Jesus, right? But where does he even start his genealogy? Good guess, he starts with Abraham. Because remember, Matthew is primarily writing to the Jews. That's why Matthew's all the time quoting Old Testament things to basically say, right? He starts with Abraham, okay? Mark, where does he start his gospel? He starts with the baptism. He basically starts with the adulthood, the public ministry of Jesus. Okay? Luke, where does he really start his gospel? Adam's genealogy. Adam's genealogy. Okay? I mean, he actually starts more with the birth narrative, but then he gives Adam's genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, going all the way back to Adam, because Luke was more writing to the Gentiles, like this is the Savior, not just for the Jews, for all mankind. But John, in a sense, beats them all, and he goes all the way back to even before Genesis 1.1. So let's look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now John is obviously trying to say this is like a new beginning, what Christ did. So let's go all the way to the very beginning. Jesus was there, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens there. The Word was there. Now, the Word in Greek, logos. The Stoics would use this word to say uh, there is so much complexity and beauty in, in nature, there's obviously some type of creative force behind this. And so there must be some type of divine reason. 
And they would refer to that as the logos, this divine reason by which the world has been built. Okay. Um, that uh, Philo was a, was a philosopher that probably used this the most, but they would not have ever thought of it as a unique individual person. It was more just kind of like there's this force, this revelation, this insight. Okay. Proverbs 8, if you take, want to go back and read that, we won't take time to do that, but wisdom in that chapter is personified as being like a helper to God in creation. Not that God needs help, right? But it's trying to say, look how wise creation obviously is. And some people would say this is kind of a reference forward to the Logos, the divine Logos Christ. So Jesus Christ is eternal. He is God. He's in communion with God, right? In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus has always existed. And the Word was with God. And really with there means toward. They were in communion with one another. We, I think we talked about this briefly uh, during the Q&A time after class last week. They're looking at one another, worshiping one another, giving glory to one another. They're in communion, perfect communion. Okay? And then the Word was God. He's fully God. Okay? Um, uh, there's a guy named McLeod who's written a great book on Christology. If you want to read that, it's called, he's got a couple. One of them is called Jesus is Lord, but here's a quote from that book. He says, To say Christ is the God would have meant either that he is the Father or that he is the exhaustive totality of God. God designated exhaustively is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it says, not Christ is the God, like he's all there is, okay? but he is God, just like the Father's God, just like the Holy Spirit's God. Okay? Another guy named Torrance, he said, there is no God except he who has shown us his face in Jesus Christ, so that we cannot go behind the back of Christ to find God or know anything about him apart from this God, for there is no other God than this God. So, although... God in totality is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Everything that God wants to say to us about himself is fully revealed in Christ. That's a lot of what Colossians is. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. Right? It's not like, well, I know what Jesus says about this, but I wonder what God the Father would think. I mean, that is, right? I mean, so much of John is Jesus saying things like, I only do what the Father tells me. I only do what the Father has shown me. <clears throat> Here's Athanasius. Um, well, Athanasius insists that God becoming flesh includes <clears throat> excuse me, all human affections proper to human nature, including weakness, anxiety, agitation, passion, ignorance, for the purpose of the economic condescension was to renew the whole man, not the least his mind. Now, a lot there, let me kind of unpack it. Sometimes when we talk about the economic trinity, that's not talking about they had dollar bills and they were exchanging, but it means they have different roles in the trinity. The Father planned salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ accomplished salvation. The Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. Maybe the clearest place you would see this would be in Ephesians chapter 1. But, so it would be wrong to say, thank you, Father God, for dying on the cross for our sins. Father God didn't die on the cross for our sins. So there are three unique in persons in the Trinity. Um, now, notice, and this, you have to be so careful how you talk about this, but Jesus literally became like one of us in every single way, yet without sin. So there were times, is it, is it sinful to be ignorant at times? No, right? If I go ask my 15-year-old daughter some calculus problem that even I can't solve, it's not sinful that she doesn't know the answer, but it's ignorance. It's a type of weakness. The Lord Jesus, 
in his humanity had ignorance. I mean, do you, do you remember? Even he said about himself when they were saying, when are you going to come back? Remember what he said in Matthew? I think it's in Matthew 24. Concerning that day and that hour, I don't know. Angels of heaven don't know. Only the Father. No. This is the way you have to talk when you do Christology. Jesus in his humanity didn't know when he was going to come back. Jesus in his divinity obviously knew when he was going to come back. So, uh, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not going to look at that today. But one of the things he said to the disciples is, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I mean, that sounds pretty sad. That sounds pretty depressed. That sounds pretty overwhelmed. So, how sad can you be? How depressed can you be? How overwhelmed can you be? How concerned can you be? And yet not cross the line into a sinful type of anxiety. Whatever it was, Jesus got right up to the line. Does that make sense? Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It, he had to take on everything about us, our mind, our emotions, all that, because if it wasn't in the incarnation, it didn't get redeemed. And we need our total person to be redeemed. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> if he didn't assume it in his nature, it's not redeemed or healed in us as believers. John Calvin, and he's speaking about Romans 8.3 here, but he says, The flesh of Christ was stained with no blots, yet to the sight it seemed sinful so far forth as he sustained punishment which was due to our sins. What he's saying is, if you looked at Jesus Christ, there was no halo. He looked like a normal human being, yet he had no sin. He could get sick. He could get hurt. He could stub his toe. He could be killed. He was a normal, weak human in his humanity. Now, some heretics would try to teach, well, no, no, Jesus actually took on our fallen, sinful nature. But the problem is that leads to a type of universalism. Because if Christ really redeemed all of, of sinful nature, then he redeemed all people. But there is a right way. Again, Pastor Reader preached a great sermon on this probably two or three years ago where he says, Jesus obviously is not fallen, but he did have our fallen bodies. He had a body that could die. Right? He didn't have the type of body just like Adam in the innocence of the garden. He had the type of body that gets tired and needs to sleep and needs to take a nap, suffering from the curse of the fall in this world like we do. Okay. Here's McLeod again. All right, The human nature of Christ does not exist for a single moment except as the humanity of God. So it's not like there was this special body sitting in heaven. It's like, oh, it's time. Let's... Okay? It came into existence united with Christ. It never becomes God's human nature. It comes into existence united to God. Christ's human nature was not begotten from the essence of God, but created from the substance of the virgin. If we may reverently probe a little further, we may say that an ordinary ovum produced in the ordinary way was miraculously fertilized by the power and benediction of the Spirit. She contributed to him exactly what any human mother contributes to her child. Genes, ordinary fetal development, ordinary growth. He was, in entirely proper sense, the fruit of her womb. You understand what he's saying there? He'll be more of a modern-day vernacular way to say it. Whatever you got from your mama, Jesus got from his mama. The color, you know, and I'm not an expert on the DNA code and the gene and all that, but you know, if it's the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, all that's Jesus got it from Mary, the virgin. 
Okay. Uh, Christ's human nature was not ex nihilo. What does ex nihilo mean? Y'all have heard that before? Out of nothing, right? And God can create stuff out of nothing. Christ's human nature was ex Maria. It was out of her substance that God made. Okay? John of Damascus says this. Okay? Mary's ear was her bodily organ of the miraculous conception. She heard by faith. Right? I mean, the angel said, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and you're going to get pregnant. And she said, be it unto me according to your word. She heard by faith. That's how she got pregnant. So here's Cloud again. I know there's a lot of long quotes. Then we're going to dive into the text. But I, I want us to try to stretch our brains a little bit. The human nature of Christ cannot be identified with the Logos. The man, Christ Jesus, can. He's the eternal word. So when we talk about Christ Jesus, we're talking about his human nature and the divine nature. The historical Jesus is the Logos incarnate. We do not encounter the word in him. We encounter him as the word. So it would be wrong to say something like, well, the humanity of Jesus is like a window into the divine Jesus. It's like, no, 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 they, they are totally united. The Logos asserts his own deity only in strictly monotheistic terms. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. The Nicene theology does the same. The Father and the Son are not two beings. They are one and the same being. It was fundamental to draw a distinction between person and essence. In Christ, divine personality, this, this, is, this is crucial, and we're going to see it in the text in just a minute. Get this. In Christ, divine personality is caught up in the process of learning and becoming. We may even say that his experiences are taken up to be a part of the meaning of the Godhead itself. Gethsemane is a part of the memory of the triune God. Okay? The divine personality is caught up in the process of learning. Just think about that for a second. We're going to talk about it more in a minute. Here's Calvin one more time. Since neither is God alone could he feel death, nor is man alone could he overcome it. He coupled human nature with the divine to atone for the sin. He might submit the weakness of the one to death that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, his divine nature, he might win victory for us. Okay? All right. I know that's a long, long quote. Welcome to seminary. All right, let's keep going. Um, John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you see what John is trying to do in verse 3? Right. There are sometimes in the Bible, right, people will say, well, that verse is subject to your interpretation. And one, Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, they, they would be a cult today that would say, no, 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 Jesus is the greatest of all creatures, he's the greatest of all beings, but the Father alone is eternal and Jesus is created. You ever tried to talk to a Jehovah's Witness? One of the most frustrating experiences of your life because they have their own translation of the Bible. And they've gone in and retranslated. They say, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But you see what John is doing is he's saying, I'm not going to let you mistranslate or misquote me. So what he says in verse 3 is like he's trying to make this as plain and obvious as he can. All things were made through him. So if anything ever got made, it was made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made. He's like, there was not, there's not one exception to this rule. Okay? Here's what the Jehovah's Witness say. No, 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 okay. God made Jesus first, and then he made everything else through Jesus. And John says, no, he didn't. <laughs> everything that ever got made was made through Jesus. Not one thing, not even Jesus, okay? Jesus is eternal. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, 
There's two different uh, words in Greek, uh, especially that show up in the Bible for life. One refers to physical life. One refers to spiritual life. The word for spiritual life is zoe. That's what you get here. And what it's saying, think about this. Let's just read it in light of that. In him was spiritual life. And the spiritual life was the light of men. We're not going to go back to our ordo salutis talk, but if you remember that, right? What comes first? (laughs) Faith and understanding or regeneration? And it's not just Paul in Romans 9. It's John very clearly right here says, you get spiritual life, you get regenerated before you even get the insight to understand. You get life before you get light. Okay? If you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He took on a human body. He tabernacled among us, literally. He set up shop. Right in the Old Testament, God said, my presence is going to go with you. Cloud by day, fire by night, over the tabernacle, over the people. And now it's like in a more real way, I'm going to tabernacle among you. In a literal human being. Here's Calvin again. The abasement of the flesh was like a veil by which his divine majesty was concealed. The glory of God's self-revelation in Christ is apprehended only by the faith of his disciples. Whatever signs of his divinity Jesus gave during his earthly life and whatever rays of divine glory shone through the veil of his flesh, his divine nature could be discerned only by those who had faith. Those who were offended in him wanted eyes, meaning they needed eyes, to see his conspicuous glory. So in one sense, if you were spiritually alive and you had faith, it was obvious. It would be obvious to you there's something radically different about this man. But if you were dead spiritually, just with your physical mental, emotional, psychological capabilities, you would look at Jesus and say, this looks like a normal man. Maybe he's really smart. Maybe he's like a miracle worker. But only with supernatural eye-opening could you really see his glory. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Listen, if you're a genuine believer, right, you're abiding in the vine of Christ, and just like the sap is always coming through the vine into the branch, helping it bear fruit, helping it stay alive, helping it stay attached. If I am abiding in Christ, if I'm saved, if I've been grafted into Him, it's like the Holy Spirit is continually taking the grace, the goodness, the glory of Jesus and slowly but surely pumping it into my life. I'm on life support. I didn't just get a one-time miracle and now I can live independently. Christians are plugged into the vine. That's how we stay alive spiritually. And then verse 18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The only way to really know God the Father is to know the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes Him known. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Apart from me, no one comes to the Father. Okay. Now, let's go to Luke. All right, that's John's beginning. Let's go to Luke and look at the incarnation. Um, you know, for the sake of time, let's just go to Luke chapter 2 because I think this is where we see some of this the most clearly. You know, only Luke has a story. When you read Luke's opening, what you see is that Luke did a lot of research. Okay, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. Uh, Luke almost certainly, we don't know this for sure, but we're like 99% sure, 
Luke was able to interview people like Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's why you get some details in the Gospel of Luke that you don't get other places. And you get this story, which is really interesting. Now, when I teach my whole class on Christology, one of the questions I like to ask the class, and it, it, 10 years straight, would always lead to a controversy. You know, if you had been one of the shepherds there, or Mary or Joseph, when Jesus was first born, and you could go up to baby Jesus and you could say, baby Jesus, what is two plus two? What would baby Jesus say in return? He'd just cry or something. Because in his humanity, okay, number one, he doesn't speak English. He doesn't speak anything as an infant, right? Number two, he doesn't know basic math. Now, could the Lord Jesus in His humanity access His divine nature whenever He wanted to? Yes, absolutely. But I think we, a full reading of John, we don't have time to do all this today. The best way to understand it is Jesus only accessed His divine nature when He knew the Father wanted Him to access His divine nature. And otherwise, He lived in His humanity just like we do dependent on the Holy Spirit to do the works that God the Father was calling him to. That ought to be super encouraging to us. Yes, he's God. Yes, he doesn't have indwelling sin. And yet, fully human, tempted in every way as we are, suffered more than all of us put together right, and yet faithful. Listen, he is so much more than a model and an example, but he's not less than that. So, let's look at this story where a lot of this becomes clear. Luke chapter 2, and let's start in verse 40. And even while we're reading this story, I want you to be wrestling with this question. Why put in this story? Why put in this story? I mean, you get the birth account, right? The Magi, maybe up till two years old, the wise men are coming to visit him. You know, he gets circumcised, he goes to the temple, all that kind of stuff. And then everything else is after he gets baptized as public ministry. It's one little story in the middle. Just think about that. But Luke chapter 2, starting verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Old Testament uh, rules were that every adult male was supposed to go up to a feast at least three times a year. But if you were poor and you couldn't really make the journey, and you, but you were devout and you really want to do one, Feast of the Passover was it. Okay? And it was a week-long event. And if, you know, depending on your money and your devotion, you'd try to stay for the whole week. But maybe you're poor, maybe you're not that devoted, maybe you don't, but it's his custom for his little poor family. We know they're a poor family. They go every year. Okay? It seems they stay the whole week. So. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So they did this every year. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Now, just a side note. Uh, I don't know about you, but probably the first dozen times I've ever read this story, I'm like, well, his parents must be complete morons, right? It's like you've been entrusted with the Savior of the world and you lost him. It's like, right, you have one job. Keep up with Jesus and you lost him. Uh, but it helps us to understand a little bit of context. In, in, in Jewish religion at that time, a little boy became a man 
when he turned 13. So age 12 was the year of transition, right? You know, even today, some really devout Jewish families will still celebrate bar mitzvah, and that's the becoming of a man, age 13. So when you were a child, okay, the way that these caravans would travel usually is maybe all the men would be in the front, all the women would be in the back, or vice versa. But the children would travel with the women. But all the men would travel separately in the caravan. Age 12 was the year of transition, so really it was up to the little boy. Well, do you want to stay with mom or do you want to come up here with dad? You're going to be with dad next year. So it's highly likely that Mary and Joseph are not that bad of parents. They just did what most parents, oh, I think he's with his mom or surely he's with his dad. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him. So just pause here. Three days, he's all alone. But Matthew Henry, if if you don't have Matthew Henry's commentary, get Matthew Henry's commentary. It's it's so good. It's so insightful. And so often, it's it's, it's even devotional. But part of what he says is, about this passage, he says, if you ever feel like you lose connection with Jesus, you need to be like Mary and Joseph. You drop everything, and you search until you find him, until you reestablish connection. Now, I don't know about you growing up. Think, I want you to think about where, what you were like when you were age 12. And if you grew up in a Christian family that went to church, right? What did you do when church was over? It's like, Dad, can, we, can you please not talk to anybody today? Can we just run to the car so we can, you know, beat the Baptist or whatever to lunch? You know, please don't stay and talk. Don't be nice. Don't shake hands. Don't smile. Can I have the keys? I'm going to go sit in the car, listen to the radio. Not 12-year-old Jesus. His, they've been there for a week. Everybody else leaves, and Jesus says, "Huh, I got some more questions. I'm gonna hang around because think about it. Nazareth would have been like this little backwoods community, maybe a few dozen, twenty or so families. They didn't have libraries back then. They didn't have the internet. Certainly not in Nazareth. Okay, they didn't have the internet anywhere. They might have had a library in Babylon. They didn't have one in Nazareth." He's God in the flesh. Whatever the local guy at the synagogue might be able to tell him doesn't compare to what he could get from the high priest when he goes to Jerusalem. And it's like he is a little sponge just soaking it up, trying to understand. Verse 46, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You ever been having, I mean, a lot of us are in youth and college ministry. You ever been having a conversation with a student? And they're not arrogant. It's not like they're a know-it-all. Like I don't, But they're asking a lot of questions. But even the way they ask questions show how much insight they have. Like, that's a really great question. How, how would you even know to ask that question? The, that's what's happening. To all the great teachers of law, they're blown away by the the questions that the Lord Jesus is asking them. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Okay, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Obviously, they're panicked. They're worried. We lost Jesus for three whole days now. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, remember, he never sinned. This is not disrespectful. This is, if I can say it reverently, God trapped in a 12-year-old body. 
You should have known where I've been. It's, it's just kind of an innocence with no guile. I, I think I've shared this story with some of y'all, but I'll share it again. Um, I had, well, one of my sons, when he was little, he was like a little kleptomaniac. He just, if he saw anything that he liked, and he liked random stuff, so he liked, you know, dry erase markers. He might like this coffee cup. He might like this receipt, this little Ziploc bag. And he would just take stuff, and he'd go hide it in his room. And so if you lost something important in the house, you'd think, I think he's got it. So I came home one time. My wife had lost a button from her blouse or something. She's like, I know he's got it. And he's pretty young. I said, babe, you know, have you asked him? Yes, I've asked him repeatedly. He's denying it. He said he doesn't have it. Will you please go in there? I said, yes, I'll go ask him. And, uh, you know, I said, do you have any evidence that he has? She said, no, but I just know it that he has to have it. Okay. So I go in there. I said, hey, buddy, uh, you know, mom's lost this button. He's like, I don't have it, Dad. I said, okay, buddy. I said, are you sure? You know, and before I, he said, Dad, I don't have it. Mom's already been asking me. He was very young at this time. He said, if you don't believe me, I guess you'll just have to wait until you die and go to heaven and you can ask God and he'll tell you I don't have it. Now, that could be a little disrespectful, but I was kind of standing there. I was like, well, okay, that's a pretty good argument. You know, I, th I think he's, he's sick of asking questions and he's trying to do his best to convince me he really doesn't have the button. I, I went back to my wife. I said, I don't think he's got the button. You know, <laughs> look somewhere else. So the point is, this can sound disrespectful. I don't think it's disrespectful. I think to Jesus, it's obvious. Now, side note, I'm going to go. Here's my best understanding of why this story is in the Bible. Because remember, go back to infant little Jesus, right? And we say, hey, what's two plus two? And he doesn't have an answer. What if you went to infant little Jesus and said, why are you here? Why did you come to planet Earth? Why were you born? Infant little Jesus wouldn't have an answer in his humanity. So here's the question. When did he have an answer to that question? There was a movie made years ago called The Last Temptation of Christ. Have any of you even heard of it? I hope none of you have seen it, but maybe you heard of it. Okay, I had William Defoe. He played Jesus. I think it was Martin Scorsese. But, you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I've only seen like two minutes of it. But basically, it's like Jesus and he's wrestling with, like he, when he first meets John the Baptist. And he's like, he's asking John the Baptist, like, who am I? Like, he doesn't know who he is. Okay, so the whole thing's blasphemy. Don't watch it. All right. um, but it is a fair question. If you really wrestle honestly with Christology, when did Jesus, in his humanity, know that he was God? Know what he had come to do? Okay. Um, and I think that's why Luke put this story in the Bible to say, at least by age 12, he knew who he was. He got it. Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And does that verse bother anybody? They had angels telling them. But guys, think about the Old Testament. And these were devout Jews who grew up in the Old Testament. There were all these stories about miraculous births, right? Abraham and Sarah having Isaac so late in life. Samson's birth being foretold by an angel. I mean, they, 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 I think they believed he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. And he's going to be David part two. He's going to be this super godly guy. He'll probably write some new scripture. And he'll be a great warrior that will extend the borders of Israel past what Solomon did. And it'll be the glorious kingdom and will overtake the Romans. 
He'll be greater than Abraham and Isaac and Samson and David. But they didn't realize that he was fully God in the flesh. They didn't understand that. When you read, really, when you really study, and maybe some of y'all have had this experience even this semester, not necessarily from class, but maybe from some of the reading in the Westminster Confession or R.C. Sproul or something, where you come across something and you're like, I think what I'm reading right now is true, but I don't get it. You ever had that experience where you, where you can feel like the edges of your mind being expanded? Maybe you're listening to a sermon and you're like, I have the sense that this is true, but I don't fully get it. I can't get my brain around it. I don't know what this would mean for my life, right? What do you do when you have an experience like that? Unfortunately, I think what too many of us do is say, oh, that's too hard. Let me just move on. Let me go to something easy. Don't do that. Do what Mary did, okay? Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She's thinking. She's pondering. She's meditating. She's wondering. And she probably didn't fully get it until he rose from the dead. But think about her joy years later when she's explaining all this to Luke. Jesus used to do, say some of the craziest things that I didn't understand. And it all makes sense now. Now here's what's really beautiful in verse 51. Mary and Joseph are sinful. They're doing the best they can, but they're poor, they're sinful, and compared to even 12-year-old Jesus, they were stupid. They didn't know what's going on. They did not get it. And he did. And yet, how did he respond to them? Submission. 12 years old. I was reading one commentator. It may have been Matthew Henry again. It may have been Calvin. I can't remember. But he basically said, God in the flesh. You know what we hear about Jesus for the next 18 years? Nothing. There's nothing reliable in history about him. He was a faithful little boy to his parents. Almost certainly at some point his dad died. He had to take over the family business to provide for his brothers and sisters. He was just a faithful, normal human being for the next 18 years, really for the first 30 years of his life. There's so much here. At the baptism, what did the father say about Jesus? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And how many miracles had he done? None. How many demons had he cast out? None. How many people had he discipled? None. Right? How many sermons had he preached? None. God gets real pleasure from normal people doing normal life well. Raise a family. Work your job to the glory of God. And it pleases the heart of Father God. But guys, part of what I really want us to see here is the humility of Jesus, the utter humility of Jesus. One of the com- this is what one of the commentators said that I don't remember who it was. He said, it must have been like he was buried alive. All of this knowledge, all of this power. I'm the Savior of the world. I came to start an invasion, to set things right, to conquer Satan. To make all things new. And now I just have to wait in some backwater village for 30 years in total obscurity. I mean, I'm tempted to say humility doesn't get better than this, but it does. But not much better. 
Because I don't know where you're at personally. <laughs> if you're in a job or a marriage or some other situation that feels hard, that feels oppressive, that feels unfair, that feels like your full abilities are not being appreciated, blah, 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 whatever, it could be a lot worse. And it, listen, if there's a legitimate, non-sinful way for you to change your life circumstances, go for it. But if you feel stuck, <laughs> welcome to the club. you got good company. Be humble and be faithful right where God has called you. Now, what do you do in the meantime while you're waiting? Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You just be faithful you're at and you grow in your whole person. Wisdom, stature, faithfulness with God, with man, relationally, intellectually, physically, developing yourself to the best of your abilities, not for your own glory, but for the glory of Christ. That's what he was doing. You know, and if, if, again, I've had, usually in my Christology class, I'll have one person push back really hard. No, G, baby Jesus would have said the answer is four. Baby Jesus would have, you know, and it's like, well, then if that's what baby Jesus would have said, you explain to me what the divine writer, Luke, inspired with the Holy Spirit, means when he says in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. How did Jesus increase in wisdom if he already had all wisdom? In his humanity, he didn't have all wisdom, he was growing. The divine personality was taken up in the process of growing. Okay. Um, now, I said a minute ago, well, here's Matthew Henry. The eternal word was united to the human soul from his conception. Yet the divinity that dwelt in him manifested itself to his humanity by degrees. Does that make sense? As his humanity was more capable more of the divine attributes were communicated. Um, you want a big theological word, just so you really feel like you've been in seminary today? Okay, the hypostatic union. One person, two natures. Right. Think about it in math. Okay? If I have a positive number, but I add a negative number to it, what happens? It really is like a subtraction, right? It's like a limitation. Well, that's kind of the way the hypostatic union works. You have infinite God, but then you add human personality, human body. It's like this limitation. And that's what we see and experience in the Gospels. Okay. Um, now, why do I say this is maybe one of the best pictures of humility, but not the total best? Because in some sense, this is all just a little preparation and a little foreshadowing for when his father was going to say, I need you to submit to me again. And just like in this situation, for the father to say, submit to me, son, it wasn't just submit to the father. It was submit to these two poor peasants who were dumb and they don't even know what they're doing, but they're trying their best. You already know more than them, you're 12, but still submit to them. Application point. How many times, maybe, have you been wrestling with something? Maybe it's a conflict with another friend, a roommate, family member, something like that. And you're praying, God, give me wisdom. Show me what to do. And Lord, if I'm in sin, I want to see my sin. I want to repent, right? You, you pray prayers like that. And then maybe the person you're in conflict with comes with you and says, I need to point some sin out in your life. And what you're thinking is, nope. 
<laughs> right? I'd like God to point out sin in my life, but I'd like Him to do it personally and audibly, and I'll take it that way. Maybe even a vision, but not you. But this is the way that God often works. So I'm going to work my plan through the other sinners that you're hanging out with. And real humility says, I can submit to even that. Later in his life, the father says, submit to me, father, son. And the way that you submit to me is submitting to these sinful men who want to betray you, who want to lynch you, who want to lie about you, who are going to have a kangaroo court, who are going to falsely accuse you and try you. They're going to torture you and then they're going to kill you. That's what I want you to submit to. In some sense, what was this at age 12? It was preparation. This submission was preparation for the greater submission that was to come. And so here's kind of the last thing I would say to us, guys. Um, We need to be growing like Christ. We need to be submitting like Christ. And when we're going through really hard things, I was having this discussion with a group recently. It's really easy to look back oftentimes and read Providence and understand, oh, now I see. I wonder if David, as he walked out to meet Goliath, thought, God, I used to pray over my sheep all the time. And then you let a bear attack my sheep. I never understood why would you not answer my prayers? Why did you let a bear attack my sheep? And then a lot of times you let a lion attack my sheep. And I felt like I almost died trying to kill that lion. And I'm glad I didn't, but that was so hard, God. Why'd you put me through that? I bet when he's walking out in the face of Goliath, there was a sense of, I get it. I get why you let me go through that whole bear and lion incident now. It's prepping me for this. But in the midst of fighting the bear, we often don't know, oh, God's just preparing me for something in the future. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like, I feel like I'm about to die. Why am I going through this? So when you're going through hardship, you've got to trust the character of God that He never wastes our tears and our pain. There's always a good reason in the tears and the pain of His people. And you may say, that's hard, so hard to trust in the moment. And that's when you just remind yourself of the cross, guys. The greatest pain, the greatest tears ever shed. They weren't in vain. They were for our salvation. That's just the character of God. That's just the calling card of the way God does all things. So submit in the present hardship because the greatest hardship that we all deserve, it's already been taken for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we really do honor you. We really do glorify you. We are in awe. Uh, We're smitten. We're not smitten enough, but your glorious is obvious. It's manifest. It's conspicuous. And I pray for myself and I pray for all of us. Help us to see and taste it more. Taste and see that you are good. When we see a sunset when we feel the breeze, when we read your word, when we interact with another Christian. Help us taste and see more of your goodness and glory and beauty and majesty. We pray all this only in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen 
and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.